right, let's get started. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, so we're going to do, this is uh, Pneumaticus week, week 2, uh, which that's the word for spiritual. So we're talking about the spiritual culture that we are creating with God here in this house. And uh, we talk about that uh, the church is to be a supernatural culture. That does not mean sensational. That does not mean uh, emotional uh, hype. That means an authentic community that is camped around God, having valid, true experiences with God that is beyond our five senses. We cannot comprehend him and perceive him fully with just our five senses. There is something beyond that. And uh, we're talking about spiritual gifts specifically, uh, pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So spending a few weeks on prophesy, which Paul identifies in Corinthians as the paramount spiritual gift for the edification of the church. So last week I talked about prophetic permission, that we're creating a culture that we have permission to practice. It's a safe place to practice hearing from God and stepping out in faith that you had authentically heard his voice. My sheep follow me because they know, my, they know my voice. And so we're putting that into practice here. Uh, and then rather than, uh, and, you know, and then pastoring when we have poor prophecy, which takes place from carnality, interweaving itself into uh, authentic uh, experiences with his voice, uh, we're not going to shut that down. We're going to grow in discernment, learn how to weigh words together, and then be pastored and mature into a community of purity, of prophetic purity, where we really hear from God in a very excellent and pure way. Does this make sense? Right, so we, we do this, we practice prophecy, we have the post-service ministry team, we do the prophetic booth ministry once every couple months, uh, and those are spaces uh, where we practice prophecy, we practice hearing his voice. Um, we are going to do something called Crucial Conversations. We're going to create a space for dialogue and question and answer, specifically on the topic of the prophetic. It'll be on November 19th at 3.30 before church. You can sign up. There's limited spots. There'll be 30 spots. You can sign up at the info booth. You can sign up by emailing us at info at riverhouseministries.com. Uh, first 30, we'll have the spot if you have questions. People ask me questions like, why are the children on the prophetic ministry team when we do the prophetic booths? Um, you know, I want them to start hearing his voice young. Right? I want to give people permission that there's no junior Holy Spirit. Um, I have questions like, are you forcing God to speak in creating environments? You know, is that a pressured environment? And, you know, it's like, no, it's no different than you're here expecting God to speak, right? Not me. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Okay, good. I was like, man, dude, you're not here for me, I hope. Right? Like, we're coming. And this isn't, it's not unhealthy. We're just coming in a space to listen to God, right? You have an expectation that I'm listening to God. I have an expectation that you've postured your heart to receive the words of God, right? So it's no different. We're just, right, there's, so there's just questions, though. People have questions. I'm throwing these out as questions. You have questions, sign up, come to the Crucial Conversations. I'll be led by um, me and Susanna, maybe other leaders within the church. So, okay, uh, here we go. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 3 and 4. Uh, I'm going to talk about first the purpose of prophetic, then talk about how we're going to pastor the prophetic in our community so that we are a culture of prophetic purity. Okay, so this is 14, verse 3 and 4. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. 
All right, so what is the purpose of prophesy? Edification, exhortation, consolation. Right? Edification is a word that means to build up or to instruct. Right? So uh, prophecy edifies the church. It builds the church. Right? And it builds people up. Right? Uh, and uh, practically, this looks like speaking identity into people. Right, God has, we're all children of God, and sometimes we act as if, like, that's the epitome. Like, yeah, we got to know my identity in Christ. I'm a child of God. No, you're a unique child of God. You have a unique calling, a unique purpose, a unique destiny, and the prophetic will unveil that. It will speak that into people, right? Gideon is a man in the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's a coward by the world's standards. He's hiding in a wine press, but he's pressing wheat. He's sifting through his wheat, Right? Because he's scared. He doesn't want the, there was uh, raiders. They were getting raided all the time. Uh, uh, Israel. And so he's scared. And God sends an angel to prophesy to him. And he doesn't say, hey, you're a coward. Quit being a coward. He speaks identity. He says, mighty man of valor. Gideon's like, who? <laughs> mighty man of valor. Right? He's edifying his son in this experience. Right? And prophecy will edify the church. It will speak identity. It will speak who you are and builds you up in Christ. All right? So the next is exhortation. This is emphatically communicating in such a way that you're urging someone to do something. Right? So exhortation creates movement. Exhortation is inspiring. It's a synonym with encouragement, which to me I think has, there's an attack on the word encouragement. It sounds so soft. Oh, you have the gift of encouragement. I used to be like, oh, I hope I don't have that. It sounds kind of like, whew. It's like encouragement. You fill people with courage. Right? Come on. Right? So you're filling people with courage, and it's causing movement, action in their lives. Right? Paul is in Timothy's. He exhorts Timothy. He says, Father, exhort you. Preach the word in season, out of season, right? This is like the father of the Mediterranean church speaking to this young kid. I exhort you, preach the gospel, right? He's like firing him up to go do something. And prophecy will do this, right? It will fire us up. It will, it will, it will, it will encourage you, put courage in you to go and do something. It will spur you into action. Okay, and lastly, consolation. This means to comfort, especially in times of loss and disappointment, right? So it makes you feel seen and known when you're going through suffering. Right? I remember there was a day, uh, it was a very difficult day, and I was making some decisions that were not necessarily popular. I was speaking the truth in love, but it was just a very difficult environment. I did not feel very safe. I felt very alone, and I was suffering, and everybody else was not suffering. They were very happy, and I just felt very alienated in this environment. And a man that I hardly know came up to me, and he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, I just want you to know, like, your father is so proud of you. Like, what you're doing is not easy, and, but he's so proud of you. And just crying his eyes out, I hardly know him. And I knew in that moment the voice of my father found me, and he was consoling me. He was bringing consolation through a prophetic word. I don't even know if that guy believed in prophetic words, but he was prophesying to me, and it was comforting my heart. Is this, is, are you following me? Okay, so prophecies for edification, exhortation, consolation, right? It's the words uh, judgment or condemnation are strangely missing from that list. And it's interesting that a lot of people, they think of prophecy as judgment. As you're calling people out in their sin. 
All right, I took a spiritual gifts test once, and literally, it was like the gift of prophecy was you perceive people's sin and call them out on it. I was like, oh gosh, I don't want that, right? Like, that's what a lot of people think of when they think of prophecy. That's not in the New Testament definition, all right? And that is because in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Matthew 7, 1, judge not, so you won't be judged. Whoa, right? New covenant. Prophecy changed. In the old covenant to the new covenant, it changed, all right? And, uh, but this does not mean that God turns a blind eye to sin, Right? God still deals with sin. Sin's an issue. We've been <laughs> kind of exposing a lot of it lately. Right? It's not bad. It's not uh, shame. It's not condemning. But it's grace. He loves us so much. He won't keep us in mediocrity. He will follow us and pursue us and love us into fullness. Right? So God still deals with sin. But he does not primarily use the prophetic to deal with sin. He uses the pastoral grace to bring correction to people walking in compromise and sin. All right? So the New Testament church has been given prophetic leadership, prophetic grace, and it's also been given pastoral leadership and pastoral grace. Right? The prophetic grace is to bring discernment and perception to the body of Christ. You will see. You will perceive. You will hear. You're in tune with the supernatural realm. Right? That The fact that God... God speaks to you is supernatural. Like, by definition, that, that's not normal. That's not natural. God speaks to me, right? But we're Christians, so we're weird. Um, okay, that is what the prophetic grace does. Okay, the pastoral grace is grace that gives, uh, that brings health and wholeness to the body of Christ. All right, so perception, health, and wholeness. We need the pastoral and the prophetic working together if we want to see a healthy culture in any church, specifically speaking of supernatural culture where God is manifesting because it can get messy and there's a lot to process through. I spoke on this last week. Okay, so I'm going to talk about two instances where the prophetic anointing brings something, but it needs to be partnered with the pastoral anointing. Okay, and, and I'm going to talk to how are we going to pastor the prophetic in this community so that as I spoke last week, there is both permission and safe, and, and like a pr you can practice, but also there's safety, and there's excellence, and there's purity to what we're doing, okay? So correction, there's this idea of correction. This is how God deals with sin now in the new covenant of grace, okay? He does not rebuke and judge in the same sense that he did in the old covenant, okay? He uses correction, right? And all throughout Proverbs, there is this symbolism used, and it's a rod of correction, it's like a rod is for the back of fools, right? And it's, there's correction. A rod is for correction. Psalm 23, David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And it's very much in a shepherd, in a pastoral paradigm that he's speaking about this rod, right? And the way that a shepherd would use a rod, it would, he would use the rod. The staff would turn to a rod when a sheep started wandering away, right? And if, if a sheep wandered multiple times away from the pasture, uh, the shepherd would take the staff, it would now be a rod of correction, and he would break the sheep's leg. And then he would have to get the sheep and carry it on its shoulder through the entire mending process as that sheep healed. And then once it was restored, it, it didn't leave the shepherd anymore, crazy enough. <laughs> right? Wow, it's crazy. Right? But that is a pastoral grace. That's a pastoral anointing, and I, I just want to draw from that imagery how relational of a, of a 
paradigm that is. Right? Like, he's holding the sheep. He's loving the sheep. He knows the sheep. He doesn't just break the leg and say, go figure it out. It's going to cost him. Right? There's a, there's a partnership in that process. And the pastoral grace can bring correction in such a loving way that it will bring healing. It may hurt you through correction, but it will heal you and restore you to health and wholeness so that you can walk the paths of righteousness. Amen? Right? The prophetic grace is not for that. The prophetic grace is to perceive. It's not necessarily to bring health and wholeness. And it's not necessarily relational. I've prophesied to people I've never seen again. Right? So is, are you following me on this? Okay, so I'm going to walk through like a hypothetical scenario, okay, of how these things merge together. There are times because I'm both, I, I operate in the prophetic, but I'm also a pastor. So I've learned kind of how to merge these things. And now I'm, so I'm kind of speaking as a pastor tonight. And the next, the next message I'm going to talk on will be more from a prophetic standpoint of demonstration and cultivation. Through God, I perceive a, as a pastor, okay? So say I'm meeting with someone and I perceive, through God, I perceive a root of self-righteous pride, which this happens a lot. Okay, I don't like, and the Lord shows me this. I'm discerning this. I'm perceiving this through a grace, right? I don't go, hey, by the way, God showed me something for you. You want to hear? Yeah, yeah, tell me. You're really prideful, and he's about to just rip that out of you. <laughs> it's like, you'd be like, okay, well, I'll never come back to your church again. I'm going to someone else, right? Like, the prophetic is not a tool to execute. Right? It's not to pastor people. It's not to correct people. It's not to judge people because people feel judged in that way. But if you perceive with a prophetic grace, right? So usually in a prophetic standpoint, if I'm not pastoring in person, say I'm, the Lord will show me. I used to do street ministry all the time. I would see things, this junk, da-da-da-da. Then the Lord would say, speak to the opposite. Right? Exhort them into action. Like, okay, they, they're walking in impurity. I would see that. While they're walking in sexual impurity, the Lord would say, speak to their identity. This is who they are. Righteous and redeemed and pure. They shine before me. I look at them in my eyes. I cry because of how beautiful and pure and spotless this person is. Tell them who they are, right? You're exhorting them. You're speaking to the opposite, and it can create movement, right? There's the prophetic grace, okay? But the supernatural, okay, I perceive the pastoral grace actually grounds the supernatural, the mystical side of prophecy. It grounds it into real life. It grounds it into, like, relationship, Right? So I'll have times. There's people that I both prophesy to and I pastor. And so what the Lord will do is he'll see, okay, this is what you're doing. Then the Lord will say, yeah, and see this situation, it plays out in this dynamic. So have a conversation about this dynamic and root out and lead the conversation. You see what I'm saying? So it's like real. You're talking about real things. It's not just, yeah, God told me this. It's like, no, I'm now I'm pastoring you. I'm in a relationship with you. Okay, and when I'm saying a pastoral grace... I'm not just meaning that pastors operate in pastoral grace. Okay, we're a pastoral people, right? Revival group leaders are operating as pastors, right? Like, you have, we, like we all have people that we mentor. You're operating as a pastor. I'm talking about counsel, okay? I'm talking about counsel versus prophecy, right? So counsel is where correction can come, right? And you ground it in the relational. You ground it in relationship with people. Right? You ground it in real life. Hey, I see this situation, and when you do this, it's causing me pain here, or it's causing them pain here. Can we have an honest conversation that can get down to a root and then deal with the thing that I'm perceiving? Do you see how they work powerfully together? Prophecy perceives, but then the pastoral counsels people into breakthrough. 
right? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful partnership. Okay, and I'm going to speak a little bit more into that in just a minute. But the second thing I want to talk to you about pastoring the prophetic is direction. Right? Sometimes people get directional words. I've heard it. It's directional words have led people to this church. Hey, I got a word. I'm supposed to move to Boise and da 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 da. Right? So this happens sometimes. The first thing I want to say is whenever you're gi- if you're giving someone a directional word, like hey, maybe you're like I don't know why, but I just really feel like uh, you know you're going to be changing jobs or something like that. Okay, say that with a lot of humility. Hey, I just want you to know, I'm just, I just keep discerning this, and I just want to present this to you. I just keep feeling the sense of movement, and you might, you see what I'm saying? You don't want to come and be like, boom. You're not telling people where to go and what to do with their lives. You can share what you're perceiving. Do it with humility. But this is mostly what I want to speak to. If you receive a directional word, right, like, hey, someone gave me a word that I was going to be a missionary in Mexico. Okay, I'm making something up, right? Um, you... You, you should not act on that until you have had pastoral validation. And I'm not speaking of pastors. I'm talking about counsel. I'm talking about people in your life that know you, that can validate from a relational level, people that you trust, people that you process life with, can validate from a relational level that that bears witness with me. Does that make sense? It's like, oh no, I got this word. Okay, well, you need that to be validated with people that know you, the people that know your patterns, the people that know how you operate. People see things, right? Oh, well, what about six months ago when you had a similar experience, but that wasn't actually God? You see what I'm saying? People know you. You need to ground this in the relational. If you are authentically receiving something from God, it will be confirmed by people in your life. Okay, and I'm like... I'm speaking from people that are like coming from a neutral place and actually discerning God. They're not operating in fear, control, right? Like you have bad counsel. I'm talking about good counsel, and you know who good counselors are versus bad counselors, people without agendas. Okay? So with direction, you, you have a responsibility to process this at a horizontal, relational level with, with, with pastor, with, in counsel. Are you following me? You're really quiet. Okay, thanks. I'll preach to you too over there. All right, First uh, Corinthians 14. So I'm going to talk now about specifically how we are pastoring the prophetic here, what this actually looks like, okay? And this is just a few verses in the end of chapter 14 of Corinthians. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who's seated, the first one must keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. Okay, I'm not going to unpack these verses. I just want you to see that these are prophetic protocols, right? This is how they were pastoring the prophetic grace in Corinth, right? And I'm not going to share how we're pastoring the prophetic grace in Riverhouse, all right? So we have, uh, like I said, we have a, a prophetic ministry team. They minister at the end of services. They minister sometimes in the prophetic booths. Uh, and that's really the main expression that we have of the prophetic grace in this church, right? So the way that we're pastoring this uh, is there's a process to get on that team. Right, And it's both, uh, there's an educational standpoint, you have to go through some classes, you have to read a book, you have to have some, um, some, some meetings. Uh, but then there's also like an incarnational process, which is you have to bear fruit. Either the word's flowing through you or it's not, right? You have to bear fruit. And uh, Kim Gillespie, she's not here this service. She runs this ministry, pastors this ministry, meets with the people, every single person on the team individually, pouring into them under my leadership. 
me and Kim get together pretty periodically and we start talking. Okay, where is the Lord showing you? What do we need to do to be faithful to sow into this ministry, to sow into this community? What, like, how do we pastor this into a place of excellence, into a place of purity? This is something very important to us that we're sowing and being extremely diligent into our time and our thoughts and our prayers and our actions. All right, booths, we have evaluate. We have creating avenues for feedback. Whenever we do prophetic booths, we have evaluation forms that we will give all of you that you can fill out. We read every one. They go to the people. They're anonymous. They don't have your name on them. But we look at these things, and it gives things, bugs in our ears of what we need to do to be more faithful. Right? And I just want to say this to all of you. If you ever have a poor experience when someone is ministering to you, please come and make that known. Please tell me, tell Kim, tell someone on the staff. It will not fall on deaf ears. We want to hear and we want to have conversation and we want, this is a relational environment where we are growing together and perceiving the voice of God, right? So please, please do not be silent. Share. And we've had people share and they've brought transformation. They've brought the changing, the changing the way we do things. We're learning how to do this, all right? Um, and I also just want to speak that, like, we don't shut down ministry. I'm fine if you guys pray for one another out there in your seats because I hear testimonies of Good things happening when you guys are praying out there. So ministry happens outside of just up here. I don't necessarily have a bunch of control over what happens, but even if you have a bad experience out there, please come bring feedback. We will hear you, and it will help us discern with the Lord how to speak and pastor the prophetic grace. Amen? Okay, and then the last thing I want to speak to is corporate prophetic words, corporate prophecy. I believe God speaks sometimes in such a way uh, that it is a prophetic word for the entire church. I believe the sermons are to be that way, but sometimes it's different. There will be specific things, specific whatever, and sometimes you've told me. People have come up to me and said, I have a word. I think it's for the whole church. Um, my principles, I won't share a spontaneous prophetic word to the entire church. Um, prophecy is not a spontaneous phenomena. We receive inspiration often in a moment, but we, uh, God gives us unction once we're ready to give it. And we have to have a good relationship with inspiration and unction. Sometimes we give words prematurely that were not developed. Okay, but I expect any, I will not share a prophetic word corporately until it has been crafted and refined uh, and presented before the leadership of the church and then it will be shared. Does that make sense? If, if we feel grace. So if you have a corporate prophetic word, um, by all means, please share it, write it down, craft it, make sure um, it expresses well what the Lord's giving you, and then we'll take a look at it and please present it. Does that sound good? Okay. So I want to talk about weighing prophecy. Um, I, I kind of began and touched on this subject last week, but I want to expound upon it. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, do not despise prophetic utterance. Uh, but test everything, weigh everything carefully, and cling to that which is good, right? So it's very important that we're a discerning culture and that we know how to weigh and judge prophetic words, uh, both that we're receiving and what we're giving, corporate prophetic words, anything, right? And the first thing and the most important thing I can say tonight is the Bible. You need to know the Bible if you want to have purity in your ability to communicate the word of God. Right? For some reason, people think that uh, prophesying would be different than preaching. If I don't know the word, how am I going to preach to you the word? <laughs> okay, I, I think that's funny. Um, okay, God's voice is not limited to the Bible, okay, but it's governed by the Bible. Right? He can speak like, if he says, hey, Jordan, I love you, that's not in the Bible, but it's true, right? 
Like there is subjective revelation. He speaks to us through all of creation, but it is governed. He will not violate his written word. And so he's given us as a gift and you know, his whisper is intertwined into every word on these pages. Like I see the Bible as a window that you gaze through and behold the face of Jesus himself. Right, so if you are denying the invitation here, you're not, you're not positioning yourself to be a good steward of his voice in your life. You're not telling him that I value it that much. Right, so the first way, we have to be a people that know the word. I believe there's a correlation between our knowledge, our intimate knowledge of the word, and our knowledge of his voice. Right, and many years ago, the Lord told me, he said, you need to, you need to seed the clouds. So what do you mean? So I started studying on Wikipedia. How do you, what does it mean to see clouds, yada, yada, yada. Turns out the way that lightning clouds produce lightning is that they have to be extremely seeded with water. They have to be full, saturated with water. And there gets so much H2O molecules within a cloud that as the winds start going and the clouds move, they start interacting and rubbing against one another. And the charges start, the positive charges start rubbing off and the negative charges start rubbing off and the cloud begins to be polarized. There's a, there's a potential, there's a kinetic potential potential within the cloud that starts being formed because the cloud is so full of water, right? And eventually the potential gets so great that boom, a lightning bolt strikes. And it turns out 90% of the lightning strikes take place within the cloud and 10% take place and actually touch down on planet earth. Right? And I think this is such a picture of the prophetic, of the relationship between the written word and the spoken rhema word of God. Right? We seed the cloud of our hearts with the word of God. Right? We get his scripture, it gets inside of us. Right? His word, it becomes living and active and we create the potential to begin to recognize and perceive when he's speaking. Right, And I believe that prophetic ministry, right? we always talk about giving prophetic words. I believe 90% of our prophecy is between me and the Lord. It's about intimacy. That's where you learn the voice of God in your journaling, in your praying, in your times of devotion. Right? And then it's just like a small percentage. It's a tithe of your time that is actually ministry. Right? You're ministering. You're not, you're not, like, so that's how you know his voice. People ask me, I just had someone first service say, how did you know that was God? That was crazy. That really ministered to me when you spoke that. That was crazy. Like, that was crazy. How do you know? It's because I've spent a lot of time with God. I've learned his voice. I make decisions all the time with him. And I learned pretty quick if it was God or not. Because <laughs> some released good things and some brought a bunch of messes. God doesn't lead you into messes. Right? You learn his voice by intimacy. Okay, but you have to seed the cloud of your heart with the word of God. If you don't know this, then you don't know him. That may be an overstatement, but I'm just trying to be dramatic. Okay, so seed the clouds. That's my point. Just know the Bible. Got to be a person of the word. How are you going to discern of what he's speaking to you, right? Like when you know his voice, when someone comes to you to give you a word, you'll know if it's him. Why? Because you talk to him all the time. It's like, well, that doesn't sound like him. Right? My sheep know my voice. When another shepherd, when a hired hand comes, they don't follow him because my sheep recognize me. Okay. Uh, the second thing for weighing prophecy is you need people, you need trusted counsel. All right, I talked about this with direction words. You need to submit this to, to pastoral grace, to counselors in your life, people, friends in your life that will give you honest feedback. Right? 
But a lot of times I see this mistake when people will believe they've heard from God, they'll call me. I get these calls. Hey, I'm really like kind of tripping out right now. Why? Because God told me to do blank, 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 but I'm not, you know, I just feel so anxious now and I'm not sure if it's him. So that puts me in a really difficult place because like, so you want me to like challenge God? Like, you know, what do you want me to do? Like God told you, so I can't be like, don't. You, know, you see what I'm saying? Weird place. You can't, you'll put someone in a weird place if you, if you want feedback and you say, God said. All right, so this is my suggestion to you and it's really important, it's practical. Is say, I'm discerning that God said. I, I feel like God said, blank, right? Because then it actually invites me as the surrogate, like counselor, right? It invites me to have a conversation about your discernment, not about what God said. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I can't challenge God, but I can challenge your discernment. Right? I had a conversation with a friend um, who was looking to go to grad school. This is like this summer. Called me in a hissy, basically, uh, because wanted to go, God said to go to this grad school, uh, and, but I want to go to this one because it's way cheaper and I don't have any money and I can't afford this one. And this one's the same education. It was like, it was literally like 10% the cost or something like stupid like that. And it was like, but I'm mad because God told me to go to this one. And in my spirit, I was just like, that's not the father. That was what I discerned. So I, I was like, hey, can I have a, I said, can I ask you a question? Sure. I said, can we remove it one thing and say, I feel like God told me? Yeah. Okay, then I started asking more questions, right? This wasn't like a prophetic moment. This was a pastoral moment. Had a conversation. Turns out, five minutes down the way, oh my gosh, that's not God speaking to me. That's the voice of my dad my whole life. He would always dun, 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 dun. And I realized it's actually him, right? Like, had a revelation. This wasn't God. And I was like, wow, so what are you going to do? I'm going to go to this one. And now at the school, loving it. Just talked to him not that long ago. Loving the school, so thankful and actually able to afford it. Okay, the point I try to make with that story is we need each other, right? We, we can fall into this false sense of self-sufficiency. Oh, I heard from God. And we don't recognize that we're interpreting that through ourselves. And because we're operating in a paradigm of perceptive encounters, we're learning to perceive his voice like children. We need each other. We need outside people that can ground it in real life and ask honest questions and have honest feedback. And oftentimes, you'll get a different interpretation than what you're getting yourself. Oftentimes, we have authentic revelation that we interpret poorly through our own dysfunction. And that's why we need each other. Does that make sense? So we have to weigh prophetic words with one another. You, you're not equipped to do it yourself. It's not the way. He likes family. God would rather speak to a community than he would an individual because he loves family. Then we all get to be a part of the process. Amen? Okay, I'm now going to speak to the, uh, the, the most foolproof way to create a culture of prophetic purity. This is literally, if we do this, there will never be a poor prophetic word in the history of River House again. That's a big claim. Ready? This is how you do that. You quit viewing prophecy as an extra spiritual moment at the end of the service, and you realize that God's called you to a life of pure speech where the only words that come out of your mouth are the ones that come out of Jesus. It kills me that we get so, we're surprised that carnality, that the flesh emotionalism comes out of our times of ministry when filth comes out of our mouths all week long. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> right? Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 
Or maybe 2 Corinthians 3, 2, it says that we're living epistles known and read by all. Written not with pen, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. We're made to be living prophetic words. That's, that's God's heart. It's not that you'll have like some good moments. Like That's part of his heart too, but he wants you to be a living prophetic word. And that means uh, life and death is in the tongue. And so that means we are accountable for every word we speak throughout our day and our life. And uh, I'm going to speak honestly to this because it's, um, it's, I'm speaking to myself. Just know that. Um, James 3 says this. Let me turn there. I'm going to read James 3, verses uh, 2 and 3, and then I'm going to read 8 through 11. It says this, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Then he talks about bits and rudders of ships. I'm going to skip down. But no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? I think what James is speaking to is it doesn't make sense to give a prophetic word that edifies, exhorts, consoles someone on Sunday and then on Tuesday, start criticizing someone or gossiping about someone. See, we, we think cursing means I curse you. I would say that gossip is a curse. It says it's like dainty morsels. This is Proverbs 18, 18. Like dainty morsels that get down into the innermost parts. It ought not to be this way. We ought not to speak a word about another person that Jesus wouldn't speak about that person. It makes no sense that we're going to be completely perfect right up here in our performance on Sundays if we're not living that. All right, and I'm preaching to myself. Uh, here's just my process in this. Um, uh, it's been a long time since I've slipped in this regard from a public perspective, but I made a a public, it's really easy for me. It's a very black and white dynamic. Uh, publicly, you won't hear a word out of my mouth that doesn't encourage or bless or honor another person or another ministry. Right? I will speak my goal publicly in the public realm, just with you know any public conversation, not just from a pulpit, is that you will have a better perception about someone after hearing me speak of them than before. Right? I want to color it in a way that's beautiful and honoring about another person, about another ministry. I hear it in the church, and it grieves me when people want to you know, talk bad about other churches. Uh, you won't hear me do that. I'll only speak good about them because there's always something to honor. Right? Um, that doesn't mean that like, I completely agree with every ministry that I've ever come across. There's a lot that I've got a lot of questions about. But you will hear me speak good words. Um, pleasant words, pure words, publicly. And I honestly can't think of a time uh, publicly in the last probably four or five years of my life that I've, I've had to repent um, because it's, it's pretty, pretty black and white. It's just like a, nope, that's how you do it, uh, is in the private realm. Where I still have a struggle and I'm in a process of being sanctified uh, is in the private realm. And that's because privately, 
It's not quite as black and white because you have to have times of difficult conversations, right? There's times where people do things that hurt you. There's frustrations. There's anger. There's real life that takes place, and you have to have a place where you're able to vent. Amen? Right? You don't vent. Eventually, that pop can just (laughs) explodes, right? And we don't want that. And so I've been in a, a, a learning, and I feel like God's consistently bringing purity to my ability to do this well, where I have a trusted inner circle of people, which I keep small, honestly, where I will really just disclose what I'm actually feeling and processing it. But this is kind of my philosophy of how I've dealt with that, um, is I always seek to honor the person and speak at some point in the conversation. Okay, this is what I'm feeling. I'm gonna be raw, honest. This is what happened. This is the behavior and the behavior is wrong. But I always seek to differentiate, differentiate in that conversation that this is the person's behavior that needs to be dealt with and is causing grievance. But this is the person's identity. This is who they are. I am not, I'm not slandering them by having this conversation. In fact, the goal of having this conversation is sorting through my junk so that I can be in a position to love and honor this person and deal with them the way that Jesus would. That's the goal, right? And so there's purpose to having the venting. It's not just for the sake of venting. Okay, I feel better now. They're an idiot, right? Um, and, and I would say here that there's a caution that, you know, you, you got to do this, but you'll notice that if you have in the same conversation five, six, seven, eight, nine times, um, you're probably missing something, right? Like, there should be movement. There should be change, right? If you're a broken record, there needs to be, you know, some, you know there's probably something unhealthy on your end there that you're not dealing with, right? Because a lot of times, honestly, we know that in conversations like that, I start looking at things in myself. Crap. Yep. Why am I so offended? Why am I so hurt, right? There's good things that can come from that, but I try to pastor people into a place of honor. At one point in the conversation, I'll always bring it back. This is who that person is, and I want to become love so that I can be a part of them becoming that person when this behavior is contrary to that, right? Um, And I still slip at times. In fact, this morning, I found myself saying something that I was like, you know, that was a stupid thing to say. It wasn't like uh, intentionally derogatory. It was just a comment about someone that wasn't even, that doesn't even live here, uh, that was slightly below neutral, if that makes sense. And it says, life and death's in the tongue. So why am I wasting my words saying something stupid like that? Right? So, uh, and I believe... Uh, that that comes because of this reason. We're going to go a level deeper. Uh, I heard, I've heard it said before that you don't have to watch what you say if you'll watch what you think. <laughs> Whoa. Um, we will be held account- accountable for the thoughts that we think, not just the words that we say. Right? The highest form of spiritual warfare is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Right? Right? Uh, I was, I'm a, I, I've, God gave me a good mind. I was always good in school. I was just smart. I could think through things. Um, but I used that um, for probably the first 21 years of my life to rip people apart in my mind uh, to make myself feel better. Talked about that a few weeks ago. But a lot of my issues were in my thinking. It was never in my words or my actions. I wouldn't say it except if I was really angry sometimes. But I would think thoughts that were extremely critical of people. I was extremely judgmental and critical in my thinking. And that's sin. I didn't say it, but it's still sin because I thought it. 
And I felt very strong that the Lord wanted me to caution tonight that we need to guard ourselves from a critical spirit. And this is why. Um, Criticism, by definition, is dishonoring. You're coming from a place that you're actually putting yourself above and you're critiquing, you're criticizing someone, right? And so it's dishonoring. And you begin to act like, anybody seen those food shows where they have to like cook something amazing in like 30 minutes and they're all competing, right? It's kind of like fun. I don't even like cooking, but I'm like, man, this is kind of cool. Maybe I'll get into cooking, right? Just because the show looks so rad. And then they'll like, they'll give it to the, like the special people, the chefs, you know, and they'll eat it. And they say things about that food that I'm like, I didn't even know that word existed, right? You're like... That looks good to me, right? They're like picking every little detail apart, right? They become a critic, right? What happens when you're operating Christmas is you, you, you become a critic, right? You actually become an elitist. Uh, you, you, you don't realize it, but you're just, you're just kind of shredding things and picking things apart. And it's like, I'm going to only eat the food that's perfect, the best bite of whatever because of all these culinary terms that no one else will understand, right? We can do this in the spiritual Right? We can become these spiritual critics that I'm going to judge and criticize every spiritual thing that happens in the church and make sure that it's just perfect, and then I'll take the bite and I'll eat it. And the problem with that is that this is the church of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was poor in spirit and hungry and thirsty for righteousness. I heard a man in Africa say, I never knew what hunger was until I was in Mozambique during the famine and I had a food truck. Again, I finally got it to a remote village that hadn't had food in months and watched these people. He said, I feared for my life because I thought they were going to kill me because they were so hungry. They couldn't, they were, they were like voracious to get this food. Pot, stomach swollen, ribs sticking out because they were starving. He said, hungry people don't care what kind of food it is. Hungry people just need to eat. And Jesus said, blessed are those that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Grace is like water. It flows down, and the humble will find it. The elite, the critics, will, they won't, they'll be blind. They won't even see God moving. God will be moving right next to them with no eyes to see because they've pumped this place up. And what that then does is it creates, you makes you a spectator. You begin to spectate. There's people that are in the river, but you're distant and you're watching it. And so the end result will be you'll leave a room that people literally got their lives transformed, that they'll share for their family. There'll be family heirloom testimonies that take place in a room, and the critic will leave uh, with five things that they'd do better if they were doing it. Yeah, it was okay, but da-da-da-da. They're in their head while people are in the river. Where do you want to be? Philippians says this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. We'll be held accountable for the thoughts that we think. And I don't want a thought in my mind that's not in his. And this is my journey is I find that it's in familiar conversations that are neutral spaces that I'll find my mouth speaking things. And it's because I've let it already slip in my mind. So I'm wanting to weed my mind even more 
so that the only things that come out of my mouth <laughs> are pure, lovely, good repute, honorable. I don't think that we would have to worry about what comes out of our mouths in prophetic booths, prophetic times, or when we're ministering with one another if we were living it. Amen. Uh, we've been on this. So um, I'm going to end there. And uh, we've been on this journey of repentance where we've had, you know, people have been standing and confessing. I'm living in shame. I'm living in offense, whatever. Uh, and it's been beautiful. But the Lord said, you're not going to do that tonight. I'm not going to pray repentance. Um, that's going to be for you guys to do with the Lord. But he did tell me to speak into why he's happy. Because I was just like, Lord, how long are we going to do this repentance thing, right? And, and he spoke to me as I was preparing this message. And he said, you need to tell them what, why. Like, what is repentance? What is the journey to repentance? Uh, and I believe the journey to repentance is a journey seeking understanding. Right? God doesn't want us to just get up and say we're sorry. Yep, I've been offended. I'm, I've got shame. Oh, God, I've got impure speech. I've, I've been a critic. Right? Uh, saying you're sorry isn't sufficient. That's to, the, the reason we stand, the reason I've been having a stand, why he's been having a stand, is it's supposed to trigger a process of you going down into the dirt to seek understanding, right? And you, to get understanding, you, you have to literally get to the point where you can stand under the entire structure and you can see the foundation, you can see the support, and you can see the manifestation. It's like if you were to do a plant, Right? Uh, it, you, you can see the roots, you can see the stem, the leaves, and then you can see the fruit that it bears, right? And a lot of times what we start repenting of is the fruit. Yeah, I've got bad fruit, so we repent. We stand and repent. We say, I'm so sorry, God, that I've got this bad fruit bearing in my life. But then we go home, and it's like, oh, we're good now. I said, I'm sorry. Okay, I've had people, and I'm sure you all relate with this, who have hurt me deeply. When they recognize they hurt me deeply, they've said, I'm so sorry. Heartfelt apology. But there was no reconciliation, and I still didn't trust them because I could perceive they still had no understanding of why they hurt me. They didn't know why they'd done this behavior. And what that does then is I don't trust that they're going to do it again. Okay, Because it's not about behavior mod. We're not trying to modify what we're doing. we got to get down into the root system of our beliefs before we'll actually change. Does that make sense? Right? Like if someone, I've had the opposite where, and, you know, I've been the one that hurt people too, so I'm not saying that people just hurt me, but um, where someone's hurt me, they've gone deep. They started digging in the dirt. They got understanding of the whole ecosystem, came and said, I'm sorry for how I wronged you, and this is why. They humbled themselves. And there's so much intimacy that forms in that moment. Man, it was like, it's like doing this repent better than it ever was before. Are you following me? So why we're doing this repentance, why God's having me speak on these things that are identifying places of compromise, places of, of brokenness, is not so we can just get up and say, yep, that's me, forgive me, Lord. It's supposed to be a trigger point that it's time for me to go down and I'm not going to stop digging until I can get under and into the root system and I can see the whole thing. There's the fruit, there's the support, and here's the, here's the beliefs. Here's what's causing this, and then rip it out of my life so then the seed of his truth can get planted instead. Does this make sense? All right, so, yeah, go after your understanding. Don't stop. You, you're not done repenting until you have understanding. And you'll know when you have understanding because you can see the whole thing. You can stand under it.
Okay, so the, all, what we are going to do uh, is, uh, and I don't know if there's someone that can play a guitar or something, but if not, it doesn't matter. But when we put the lights down a little bit, um, and I just want us to pray. There's a verse where Isaiah says, uh, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right, and he beholds God. And then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And he immediately perceives the speech, the impure speech. And uh, it says that an angel, a cherubim, came and it took a coal from the altar and it touched his mouth. And so I just want us to, I just want to pray into that, and I'm praying to that myself as well. So you can stand up, and uh, I'm just going to pray that, and then uh, I'll be good. So if you just take your hand and put it on your mouth. I pray you touch our mouths tonight. I pray you touch our tongues, God. Take it from the very altar, God, of the fire of your love, the pure love of God, and touch our lips, touch our tongues, and purify us, God, that we be a people of pure speech. God, we want to be a people of prophetic purity. God, not just in our ministry times, but in our whole lives, Lord. We want to be living epistles of purity. God, we want to be men and women with tamed tongues. We want to be fountains of sweet water only. We want to be trees that bear figs only. God, we want to be, uh, we want our tongue to be an instrument of life, to be an instrument of blessing, to be an instrument of hope and healing and love and nurture and comfort and exhortation and everything that is in your heart, God, pure and noble and honorable. God, and I just pray for conviction, God, that you'll just convict us and you'll call us into a greater place of purity tonight. Lord, call me. Start with me. God, expose the thinking that's not from you. Expose it all and make us a people of purity, I pray, in the mighty and the precious name of Jesus Christ.